welcome to The Worst Bestsellers, where we read about the importance of clean living so you don't have to. I'm Kate. And I'm Renata. And for this episode, we read Dealing with Dragons by Patricia Reedy. Joining us to discuss this iconic feminist fantasy is teacher and magic sword enthusiast, Kelsey. Hello! Hello! Hi, Kelsey. Thank you for joining us. I just want to, before we get too deep into anything, um, feminist fantasy is a really hard phrase to say, and as I was looking at it, it just occurred to me that it could easily be um, portmanteaued into feminasty. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which is also what the Throwing Shade podcast refers to its lady listeners as, but uh, I think you could call this a feminasty book, and I would enjoy it. Although it's kind of the opposite of nasty. It's very clean. <laughs> it is. And I want to address right at the top that uh, since my childhood, I have pr- been pronouncing her last name Reed. And I Reed listened too. to the audiobook of this. And it they definitely said Reedy every time they said her name. And now I feel lied to by my child brain. Yeah, it's spelled W-R-E-D-E, which definitely my brain also interprets that as a silent E. But yeah. It's not. It's a loud E. Also, before we get into it, I want to address another thing, which is that this <laughs> is the last book of this year's Flashback Summer, which is when we revisit books from our childhood or from someone's childhood. Uh, in this case, all of our childhoods. Um, and it's just kind of for fun. And when we do this, we especially in no way are calling these flashback summer books worst and so so don't add us because we know this book is great and that's the energy we're starting the podcast off with is we know this book is great this book was great when we read it in the 90s and this book continues to be great when we read it now in 20 whatever fucking year it is at this point who even knows i'm gonna put this book in a time capsule capsule and it's gonna be great in 3000 yes if they're, if they're still humans around, they will love it. <laughs> uh, so the other weird thing about before we get into why this book was important to us as children is just one more weird thing about the audio is that the production of this, it was a full cast audiobook, which I don't listen to a ton of those, but the production was directed and produced by Bruce Coville. Um, and he had a small part in it playing Cimmerine's father, the king. Have we read any Bruce Coville books for Flashback Summer or just... Yes, we read uh, The Ghost in the Third Row last summer. Yes, 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 yes. Okay. But yeah, so that was when that happened at the end. I was like, oh. (laughs) (laughs) Full circle. So so this is a book, obviously, as we alluded to, all three of us enjoyed as uh, children. It is technically, it's young adult, um, but it is very young, young adult and very um, kind of middle grady overall, even though it doesn't fall into what we now would classify as middle grade, which is largely classified based on the age of the protagonist. I do feel like fairy tale stuff gets like a pass, like because they're, I don't know, like the age of characters in fairy tales is different because they don't operate in the same way that like normal adults operate or like normal teenagers like they're sort of out of time a little bit yeah and this was also it's it's very early YA before it kind of became the marketing powerhouse that it is now and became as 
well-known and well-defined. So I think, because I remember there's a lot of, of especially fantasy young adult books, I remember from my childhood that do feel more middle gradey and do feel more young, but are technically still young adult. Which is, this is a thing that I, <laughs> I get head up about a lot because I feel like there is a tendency uh, among people who are quote unquote book people, but are not necessarily kid lit people to completely overlook middle grade. And I think that, that remembering books like this from our childhood kind of lends itself to that, to this idea of like, oh yeah, I remember some YA books I read as a kid and they totally would be fine for an eight-year-old. Because it's something I see like very frequently where someone will say on Twitter, you know, oh, I need a book for like my nine-year-old niece. What do you recommend? And people are like, oh, well, you know, has she read Sarah Dessen? Has she read The Hunger Games? Has she read all of these YA books that I now have fond feelings for uh, without kind of recognizing that even if a child is a very good reader, there's a reason why it's important for children to read about characters that are similar to themselves and not necessarily jump right in. Like, even if all the words make sense to them, contextually, it might not work as well or be... Uh, as meaningful or anything. I This is just, I have a lot of feelings about this. <laughs> Understandable. It's interesting for me to think about because, well, I mean, we talked about this when we talked about the Polk Street School Kids books. Like, you and I both mentioned kind of skipping over early chapter books. And I feel like to a large extent, I also kind of skipped over a lot of middle grade stuff, which wasn't necessarily like the best thing for me, but I technically could do it. And also, I don't know, I just read, like, whatever. And I think to some extent that is less of what's happening with kids now, and there's just sort of more options available. Of course, that's not true for everyone and not true of every household or whatever, but uh, now I do think that there's more, there's just more options, and that's great. Yeah. And I think, I mean, I feel like it comes from a good place. It comes from a place of people being like, I'm a book person. Like, I want to help this person. I know books that people younger than me like without really thinking it through. Because everyone, everyone wants to be helpful, to quote, you know, the dramatic opus of our time, Avenue Q. When you help others, you can't help helping yourselves. You get a little bit of a boost from being a good person. So yeah, I mean, I think I think it means well. I think it's just something. Perhaps if you're a listener to this and you are not a, a normally a kid lit person, to think before someone you recommend, like you know, a Court of Mist and Fury to someone's ten year old who's a really good reader. <laughs> Unless that ten year old is really horny. <laughs> just kidding. No matter what, don't do it. Um, <laughs> I remember being surprised to read that technically this is young adult because to me it's such an appropriate middle grade book and like I had so much fun rereading this book I went on to reread the others in the series and there's even like there's a character who uses a lot of big words but all the other characters get annoyed and translate which is such a great strategy for bringing in younger readers but also developing their vocabulary. Well, I mean, we read this book as a class when I was in fifth grade, and I think it is, I think if it were, 
In some cases, the distinction between middle grade and YA is, like, very clear-cut and, like, very obviously Sarah J. Mass is young adult or even yes. adult. She's definitely not middle grade. But there's a lot of books that could kind of go either way, and uh, a lot of the difference between young adult and middle grade is just, like, marketing. And mm-hmm. when this book came out, I don't think there was no. that. It yeah, was I, more... would, I don't agree that if this book came out now... I almost hesitate to say it would be middle grade because people are so much more with their finger on the pulse of the age thing. But I think the suggestion might be to age her down and make it middle grade. Hmm. I don't know. I mean, if you look at books like, um, oh, what's the one? Never mind. I'm not going to be able to remember this right now because I don't necessarily read a ton of middle grade books. But I know there's a really popular like fairy tale retelling series, and the like. The problem is all the fairy tale books are like so hinged on marriage that they just can't be about children because then it's so creepy um <laughs> so I, I uh anyway you know what it's been fully 10 minutes of this yes. so. let's move on to this book <laughs> that we read yes so if you are not do not have fond memories of this book as a child we are here for you to describe it to you because that's what we do on this podcast so the as Kelsey alluded to, this is the first in a series. I think I read three of them. I don't think I read the fourth. Or maybe I read one, two, and four. There was one that is about the offspring of a character that I did not read. That's the last one. Okay, yeah, so I didn't read that one. I just read the other three. Uh, but these books introduce Cimmerine, who is a princess, but she is a princess who doesn't like being a princess, as Kelsey wrote in the document, hashtag not like other princesses, because she is bored with, like, kind of the princess style of life, of learning manners and and learning how to be a good wife for her future husband, and instead is interested in, like, cooking and magic, and learning Latin, and fencing, and basically anything besides embroidery, and all of the other princessly things that she is uh, thought thought to should be doing. Uh, she also has some sisters who are perfect princesses, who are short and pixie-like, with like beautiful blonde hair, and she is tall, and she has dark hair, and it just does not work for the whole princess aesthetic that her parents want her to have. And by the way, like from page one, this book is so self-aware and so sort of gently meta about fairy tales and kind of the rules of them, but also how arbitrary everything is. Because in the first sentence, it describes Linderwall as being a kingdom where philosophers were highly respected and the number five was fashionable. It's like... (laughs) I don't know. It's so funny. It's so good. Yes. And it, um, so the, the, her refrain keeps being like, she's like, well, why can't I take cooking lessons? And everyone will say, well, it's not proper. It's not proper to learn fencing. It's not proper to do all of these things. It's not proper and it isn't done. Yes. And then she'll say, I'm a princess and I'm doing it. So clearly it is done, which is honestly a great argument. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, So she finds out that her parents have arranged her marriage to a prince who's, like, not that bright and she doesn't particularly like and he doesn't particularly like her. 
Uh, but he has been told by his parents that this is what he is supposed to do. And it is just improper for a prince to refuse to marry a princess. So she befriends a talking frog who gives her instructions on how to get out of this marriage by um, going to the enchanted forest and going to a particular place that you find if you walk for however long and you make the right turns. And when she gets there, it turns out to be an illusion and she is inside a cave full of dragons. And as you might guess from this very fairy tale setting and what's proper and what's not, dragons capture princesses to keep as hostages uh, to work for them, kind of like their imprisoned servants Uh, Until a prince comes and rescues them. And being a dragon's princess is actually a pretty sweet gig and pretty well respected. So this seems like a great... dependent on the dragon. Yes. True. So this seems like a... I would say a sweet gig from a status point of of view. Oh, yeah. That, like, people, when you tell people, oh, I, I was a dragon's princess, they're like, oh, cool. That's important. So she she decides that she is going to volunteer to be a dragon's princess. And some of the dragons think that this is terrible because it's just not done that a princess would volunteer. But after Cimmerine helps one of the elderly uh, elderly dragons who had an encounter with a wizard uh, and can't stop sneezing and uh, announces all of her abilities to know Latin and make Cherry's Jubilee and fence and all of these things... Uh, one of the dragons, a female dragon named Kazool, is like, well, this sounds good. I need essentially a archivist and also someone who will make me cherish Jubilee so you're hired. Yes. Two, two things that this scene establishes. One is that dragons are allergic to wizards, which is good to know. And the other is that, so, Simarin has packed a bunch of handkerchiefs and she ran away. So she gives them to the sneezy dragon and sort of like proves herself as a useful and practical person, which I enjoyed. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, one of the rules of fairy tales is no matter what you pack, it's always the thing that you need. <laughs> <laughs> so here, like, an interesting thing, too, about these books is, like, obviously, this is clearly already, you can tell, this is, like, a very kind of, like, I don't want to say 90s feminist, but also kind of 90s feminist like she's a girl this is fair it's yeah it's not like the others girls book it doesn't it doesn't completely disregard the power of like traditionally feminine stuff but it definitely like values the tomboy experience highly um but another interesting thing that comes up is that dragons don't choose their gender until they reach adulthood which i don't think is necessarily something i would have stuck out to me or I would have noticed Wait, uh, when I read this. is that true? Because I, I interpreted that as being sort of tongue-in-cheek about the dragon that was too young to have chosen its gender just because its horns hadn't come in. No, it's true. Okay. Nice. Yeah. I, yeah, I didn't interpret that as, as tongue-in-cheek at all. But it's, yeah, yeah so... It's just kind of like, oh, you don't choose uh, your sex until you come of age. Which was really interesting. Um, and there is one young dragon in a later book who uses the pronoun it because it hasn't chosen a oh, sex okay. yet. I haven't read the other books. Yeah, so that, that was just an interesting, an interesting thing. 
Yeah, baby, baby Kelsey did not really pick up on anything, I guess, unusual about it, for lack of a better term. But I, I mean, it just also goes to show that kids are willing to roll with whatever you present to them. And they'll be like, oh, I guess that's, that's good. They're happy. Because, yeah. I mean, I definitely did, so, like, the for dragons, the king and queen are kind of gender-neutral titles, and he, the king and queen are separate job titles with, like, different duties, and a dragon of any gender can be the king or be the queen. So I got that. Now I'm really interested to know what else your dragon's gender, like... Well, maybe that's answered in later books I haven't read yet. Let's keep going with this one. All right. Um... <laughs> So, Simmerine kind of settles into being Kazul's princess. Uh, her first task is to sort through all of the treasure that is totally unorganized in Kazul's treasure vault, which she does and enjoys doing uh, and is into taxonomy, I guess, which is cool. Uh, and <laughs> everything's going fine for a little while until knights start showing up to Kazul's cave because her father, as is the, you know, kind of standard for this thing, has offered a large reward to whoever can rescue Cimmerine. Uh, so all of these knights start showing up trying to rescue her from a dragon and refusing to believe that she is there of her own accord. And it, that includes also her ex-fiance, uh, Therondil, the prince who was supposed to marry her, because he kind of feels obligated, like he has to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, even though he does not want to marry her, she doesn't want to marry him and doesn't want to leave, but he won't stop coming over and over again. But also he waited until some other knights came because it's more prestigious to rescue her after there's been more attempts made. Yes. Right, this dragon has already defeated X amount of knights, so I'll look even better. Correct. He's kind of an idiot. Mm -hmm. But then Morwen, who is a witch, decides to pay a visit to Kazul's cave uh, because Cimmerine has been finding all these new recipes to make for Kazul, but Kazul's last princess was not uh, a very good cook, and they're were not a ton of cooking supplies that were available. So Kazul keeps borrowing like uh, crepe pans and things from Morwen so that Simrine can try new dishes. And Morwen like immediately like Simrine is like, Oh, like you're chill. Unlike some other princesses of dragons, like cool. Let's be friends. Um, what happens next? Well, so Simrine, decides to um, try to turn away some of the knights or, like, right. discourage them. So she goes out to put up a sign telling them that the road has washed out so they can't come into her cave. And uh, she encounters this annoying wizard, Zeminar, who um, kind of fucks with her and tries to trick her into thinking that the road has disappeared, like, altogether, like, that there's that it's fallen in. And that she won't be able to get back to her door. But she realizes that it's still there and he just made it invisible. And he sort of, it injures his pride that she has figured out his trick. And she sort of mentally files him away as like a, a bad fellow. I love that the narrative describes him as someone who couldn't resist giving advice even when nobody wanted it. Like, sorry. <laughs> 
she, the author is describing that guy before there is even a concept of that guy. Yes, he's fully wizard splaining. Uh, so when she gets back to, uh, she tries, she starts to go back to her cave after she hangs up the sign, and bumps into Therindil again, and she's like, "Oh, I hurt my ankle. I can't be rescued for like a month." Because I'm in so much pain. So tell all the other knights and stuff that, to stop coming for like a month at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while this is happening, one of the other dragons who was very against this uh, volunteer princess plan to begin with and who wanted to eat Cimmerine sees her and is like, oh my god, you're running away. I can't wait to tell everyone. And she's like, I'm not running away. I hung, I'm going back, actually. I, I was trying to come up with a plan so that I don't have to leave and people will stop annoying me about it. Uh, so when she tells Kazool, like, uh, this dragon's gonna start spreading rumors about me, Kazool, and I fucking love this petty bullshit, I love it, <laughs> Kazool's like, I'm gonna throw a dinner party for all the dragons, so that when he starts being like, oh, like, Kazool's princess tried to run away, you'll come out of the kitchen and serve us all food, and that'll show him. And that's what happens. <laughs> Kazool's an icon, these characters yeah. are all iconic. <laughs> Kazool is living her best life. Like, she finds someone to clean all her stuff and make her dinner in exchange for board and, you know, humiliating her enemies. Yes. It is excellent. So, all of the dragons are over for dinner and, like, this whole thing happens and he's humiliated that she hasn't run away and, like, his story has been proven false. And... Uh, apparently there are issues with wizards beyond the wizard that Cimmerine found Zeminar and he is the head of like the, the wizard wizard society group, all of the wizards. (laughs) He's the president wizard, president wizard. And the other dragons have also been seeing dragons uh, also have been seeing wizards around and, and there's a complicated treaty revolve about like land rights and where wizards are and are not allowed to go in this cave system. Yes, um, there's a, there are certain caverns, the caverns of fire and light. Is it fire and night? Fire and night that the wizards are allowed to have access to because of this treaty, but the rest of the caves they don't have access to, and they're always sneaking around. So the assumption is they're trying to get, they can only go to these caverns at certain times. And the assumption is that they're trying to get more time in these caverns by sneaking around and finding other ways in. So in another amazing power move, while they're all arguing about this and what they should do about the wizard problem, uh, is like, well, I'll figure out what I'm going to do and let you know, because since it was my princess who kind of stumbled upon this, uh, it's actually my responsibility to deal with it. So thank you for your input, but you can stop now. Kazul's like, thank you, next. <laughs> I want Kazul to teach me how to throw passive-aggressive dinner parties. <laughs> oh, this is amazing. I don't have any enemies right now, but I would make some, so I can <laughs> Um, so one of the things that they think that the wizards want access to is something called the King's Crystal, uh, which is a very, very accurate crystal ball that can only be wielded by the King of Dragons. The current King of Dragons is getting up there in years, and if the wizards were able to absorb the magic from that crystal ball, 
they they'd be real well off because that's how they get their powers. They steal magic from other things. Well, and, and also they wanted to use the crystal ball to be able to find other magic to steal. Yes, something like it's that. It's a whole thing, You're right? Yes. Also, it's a crystal plate. Yes. <laughs> Which Simarina argues is slightly improper because a ball is what you think of, not a plate. Anyway, the wizards want it. <laughs> yes. And Kazul figures that since uh, A, Zeminar is a haughty idiot, and B, he didn't meet Simarine for long, that uh, he has clearly has very uh, strict ideas of what a dragon's princess is like. Uh, so probably he will still be snooping around, and she should snoop around and try and find him. And if she does act like an idiot essentially and try to lure him into a sense of security that he will give her hints as to what they're doing yeah yeah full black widow by the way i just want to interject kate it took me several seconds to realize that you called him haughty h-a-u-g-h-t-y because i was i thought you're calling him a a hottie like (laughs) h-o-t-t-i-e and i was like not really, and especially for Kate, like, this is really not on brand. I was like, oh, yes, he is haughty. I, I had the same moment. I guess I used the word haughty as, like, hot person way more. So just to no, be clear, no. haughty with a G-H, yes, haughty, no, he sounds, you know, he's got, like, a gross beard and stuff. I, I would agree with both of those. Yes, that was what, indeed, I was going for there. Uh, not hottie, H-O-T-T-I-E. No. <laughs> so I think it's around here that Simmering meets the other princesses? Yeah, they show up for, like, a hang sesh. Yeah, Simmering is looking for stuff to fireproof herself with, and that's when they turn up. Oh, that's right. Yes. Yeah, she's going through Kazel's magic library, and there's a bunch of, like, scrolls and stuff, and she thinks... Maybe there's a useful spell in there. And then two girl, three princesses show up. Two of them, I don't remember their names and they don't really matter. And they're sort of like, they're typical, yes, like the other girls' princesses. And they're very like ditzy and like hate their dragons and just can't wait to be rescued by like a handsome prince and marry the prince and like, you know, do all that normcore princess shit. Yeah, I think one of them is slightly more bitchy than she is ditzy, and it's the opposite for the other one. But other than that, they have no distinguishing characteristics. Yeah. the, the Actually, like the one vague dis- distinguishing characteristic that I thought was very interesting is that the more bitchy, less ditzy one uh, is has a gold crown and has like all gold accessories and a gold dress. And the more ditzy, less bitchy one is all in silver. And then the mm. third one, who is Princess Alianora and is be soon to become Simmerine's best friend, uh, she is wearing a pearl tiara and a pearl accessorized look. Yeah. All right. So, yeah, like these, uh, you know, like like they're saying, these two of these other princesses are like, oh, like... Being a dragon's princess is the worst. There are dragons everywhere, and they expect you to clean things. Alianor is pretty chill, uh, except that she is the princess of, like, a really jerky dragon and has, like, a slightly less chill time of it than Simmerine, who obviously volunteered to be a dragon's princess and, you know, hang out. Yeah, and her dragon is named Warog. 
Yes. And he's, he'll be back. <laughs> Eleonora has the cutest backstory, though. She was, when she was born, like, basically, like, every fairy tale thing her parents tried to have happen to her, and it didn't happen. Like, they invited the evil fairy queen to her christening, but instead, like, the evil fairy queen had a great time and hooked up with her uncle. Mm -hmm. And... (laughs) And so, like, it didn't bless her, but also didn't curse her. So she would just... Because they're, like, oh, a lot of princesses, like, aren't cursed. And it's fine. She's like, yeah, but, like, she had the opportunity and she didn't do it. Yeah, and she she gets a spinning wheel for her birthday, but she never pricks her finger. Her parents leave her in the uh And she and she spins straw into linen, which is just sort of useful but not spectacular. Yes. And when she meets a uh, a fairy witch in disguise in the forest and offers her some bread instead of making diamonds and rubies come out of her mouth, she uh, tells her that she'll always have a nice smile or something. Good teeth. She'll, yeah, she'll always have good teeth. And Simmerine rightly points out that that is a way better blessing than things <laughs> like diamonds dropping out of your mouth every time you talk. And uh, I feel like there's an, another one too, another like fairy tale mishap yeah. that she has in her background that that didn't work out. So like they're like, all right, you're a fucking dragon's princess now. Okay, that's it. We're done here that's your life now. Um, but she's really chill and she is very interested in, um, Simmerine's search for a fireproofing spell because, uh, Warog is very temperamental. And whereas Simmerine wants the fireproofing spell for like big gatherings when there's a lot of emotions, not because she's afraid of Kazool. Uh, Alianora is concerned about the amount of times that Warog has almost set her on fire. So they find a spell but it needs all of these fancy ingredients and there's some that they're not able to find. And one of them is hen's teeth and the other one is something else, but hen's teeth is the important one because they eventually find the other one. But while she's trying to do some research to figure out this spell, Xanabar, Zeminar, what the fuck is his name? Zeminar. Zeminar shows up with his son and Simmerine plays dumb to try and figure out what their plan is and sees them sneaking a look at a dragon history book, specifically at the part about the caves of fire and night. So it gives them an idea that that is specifically what they're after, but she interrupted them before they could get everything they wanted out of it. So they're pretty sure that they'll probably be back. Um, This is also when we learn about the ceremony to choose the new King of Dragons. And it involves carrying a Colin stone, which is like a a big and heavy stone, but like not too heavy for a dragon to carry. But it vibrates, and if you are not the chosen king, the stone will like vibrate so hard that you can't hold it anymore. But if you are the chosen one, it'll like relax in your claws or whatever. So you have to like carry it a long distance. And if and if you're not the chosen one, it will be impossible because it will like shake on out of your hands. Yes. Your claws. So they decide that they need more information about the caves of fire and night to figure out what's going on. And Morwin has some books about it. So they decide to go through the enchanted forest to go visit her. 
and they they go they take the back way out of the caves so they go through those caves of fire and night and there's like one cavern where it just gets like pitch black for random periods of time there's one that vibrates like the Colin stone does it's made out of the same stuff so it's very hard for dragons to get through it and while they're walking through it uh Cimmerine finds like a little bit of rock on the ground a pebble that's made of the same stone and she wants to examine it so she picks it up and brings it with her and they go through a cavern where there is a well of healing water and a lot of rock slabs that are actually princes that have been turned to stone because in order to get the water out of the well you need to use the tin ladle and all of the princes immediately go for the gold ladle even though they're told to use the tin one so they're all stuck as stone slabs until a prince who will do it the right way comes along and Simrine is like that's real harsh and Kazel's like they didn't follow instructions and Simrine's like, yeah, but you, like, you killed them? And Kazil's like, no, they'll be fine after they're unfrozen. Yeah, she's, Kazil says something like every 40 princes or so, someone finally listens to directions and frees the other princes. Which is, uh, it's just so funny. It is. It's, I, this is a very good book. I this love it. <laughs> Simrine is like, oh my, like, those are all princes? And Kazil's like, no, no, the one on the end is just a rock. all of them except one are princes though (laughs) i don't know how kazul can tell but (laughs) she's been around so then we get to morwen's house which i'm sure is renata's favorite part of the book you know it baby i got my brand uh morwen's a cool witch and she has a ton of cats and and that's all you need to know about her, I think. Um, she's very cool, very practical. You know, one thing that's interesting... Okay, so, like, king and queen are gender-neutral titles, but witch and wizard are gendered, right? Like, all the wizards are men. Is that right? Yeah, all the wizards are men. There's a male fire witch later on in the series, and there's also a magician, but it doesn't go into the difference between magicians and witches. So it's still unclear what exactly separates everything. Well, anyway, uh, the wizards suck and Morwen the witch is cool. That's the main difference. That's the main thing. (laughs) Um, So they have like a a friendly chat and some cider and there's a lot of description of all the cats. Which is great. When they they head back to the caves, right, while she's waiting outside – Simarine is attacked by a giant bird, uh, and she had brought a magic sword with her for protection since they were going to the Enchanted Forest, and it was dangerous. So she does manage to kill the bird, which she feels real bad about, until she finds out the bird was going to feed her to its nestlings. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, actually, I'm, I'm okay with having killed this bird. Also, they have this funny conversation where the bird's like, okay, you get, you get my forfeit, which is these three feathers, which let you teleport anywhere with you hold the feather and say where you want to go. And she's like, is it just me or can I take another person with me? And the bird's like, oh my God, finally someone with sense is like getting my magic feathers. And again, like, I love it. Just this whole, like she, she's going to know all the details, like all the logistics of her magical gift before she accepts it. And, and that rules. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Simarine is awesome. 
I have to do a quick sidebar. So I I always pictured the Enchanted Forest in my head as the Forbidden Forest from the movie Quest for Camelot, which is a very bad movie Mm -hmm. with an awesome voice cast. It has like Gary Oldman and Eric Idle. Celine Dion does a song in it. Um, What? This sounds great. I've never heard of it. Uh, it is about a girl who wants to be a knight of the round table. So naturally, I watched it obsessively, yeah. and I have the DVD in my house right now. So uh-huh. <laughs> I have to emphasize it's not a good movie, sure. but it is very enjoyable. Sometimes that's all you want, but sometimes practically always for me. <laughs> So she takes these feathers that we were just describing and uh, Kazula has told her because she still can't find the powdered hen's teeth to look through the treasure uh, because there are some ingredients there, uh, but not to open any of the bottles with lead stoppers. So while she's doing this, Therindil shows up again and she asks him to help her. If he's going to hang out, he has to help her with her, her, task and of course he picks up a jar with a lead stopper and even though Simmering tries to warn him not to open it he does open it and a gin pops out of the bottle and it wants to kill them because that is its solemn oath except that actually it only needs to kill them if it's been in the bottle for 300 years and it hasn't been there for 300 years yet but no one ever really opens the bottles before 300 years so he isn't really prepared to do any of the other things it is a very funny scene that i am describing very poorly it's really, well we'll re- we'll just let's just read it out loud Sounds good. (laughs) But the long and short of it is that uh, she convinces him through some very clever word play and ideas to go back into the bottle and also grant them each one wish. And so Therindil asks to be able to defeat a dragon and he genders the dragon when he says it. Yes. And he says, like, I find a dragon and defeat him. Yes. And Cimmerine uh, asks for powdered hen's teeth <laughs> yes. so that she can do her spell. Uh, so Cimmerine ends up sending Therindil to go rescue one of the mean girl princesses who has a male dragon uh, captor. Yeah. And thus getting Therindil out of her hair finally. And everyone's happy forever except for a few more things. Yes. <laughs> Gosh, what else happens in this book now that Therindel is gone? Yeah, bye, boy. Uh, Eleonora comes back because she needs more fever few herb. Oh well, they do. They do the spell. They they figure out how to do the spell, the fireproofing spell, and it works. Yes. Oh, because they got the teeth, so they do it. Um, like basically, you need that. You need all the ingredients one time to do a big like initial dose of the spell and then you just need to use a pinch of fever few to like reactivate it which i guess is not as hard to come by as hen's teeth so they do it it's chill uh Eleanor goes home but then a few days later she comes back because she's been casting the spell all the time because warag has been such a dick all the time and she needs more fever few so they go out to get it and they run into um the non-hottie wizard son Antarel who um he's in he shouldn't be there because of like 
wizard treaties. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but he is there, and he's stealing some kind of purple plant that Simmering doesn't recognize. But she definitely is like, what a shady guy. And they play dumb around him and don't really... He doesn't seem to mean them harm, but they don't get any useful information from him either. Oh, and he... Actually, they do. You're right. They realize that he must be somehow working with Warog, because once he realizes that's who Lionor is, he's like, oh, I didn't realize Warog sent you. And they're like, yeah, totally. Yeah, So the, and also the purple plant that he is picking that they've never seen, like, they're in a whole kind of secret valley they had never noticed before. Uh, and most of the area around the dragon's caves is very scorched and, you know, has seen a lot of dragons coming through. And this is, like, completely untouched, which they think is kind of weird, but they just roll with it. So when Kazool comes home, Simmerine goes to tell her all about this. And when she shows her the the plant, Kazool freaks out and is so upset that she accidentally spews fire. So thankfully, Simmerine has done this spell, the fireproofing spell recently. Uh, and the fire burns up the plant and Kazool inhales the smoke and then gets very, very sick and needs to be given an antidote and then sleeps for three days after telling Simmerine that the plant was Dragon's Bane. Which, as you can guess, kills dragons. Yes. So Simmerine is like, well, we have to tell the king. I'll go tell him. And Kazula's like, the king will never listen to you. Sorry, you're a princess. But one of the older, more distinguished dragons, the one who used all her hankies at the beginning, has taken a liking to her. And Kazul thinks that the king will listen to him. So she sends Simmerine out to go talk to this older dragon to get him to help her explain to the king what's going on, that Warog is working with the the wizards and that they're doing something with Dragon's Bane and that they need to deal with this like immediately. And on the way, she walks past the entrance to the caves of fire and night and finds a prince who's stone. Mm Mm-hmm. But uh, but alive. Yes. Unlike the other princes that just turned into slabs of stone, this is like a fully articulated, talking, breathing prince, but also he's made of stone. And he also is a um, kind of like a fairy tale reject where he had a prophecy that he was supposed to help a king in his hour of need or something. So the... Do a great service for a king. Yes. And, right, because it's not gendered to do a great service for a king. And he got so overwhelmed with all of the kings who were asking for him to help them out that he kind of ran away from all of them. And the first king that he saw once he ran away, he told them that he'd do a task for him. And it was to go and get this water. And even though he knew he was supposed to use the tin ladle he just wanted to look at the gold ladle but even just touching it started turning him to stone so he jumped into the healing well and it turned him into living stone i presume yes i didn't laugh my joke it's fine (laughs) (laughs) so he's living stone yes and simran's like fine like i don't really have time for you right now but just come just come hang out in the banquet cave and I'll come back for you later. And then she goes to the older dragon. And when she gets there, she finds out that the king has already been poisoned and has already died. 
and they're already planning for the trials to choose the new king. And he makes her help him find a coronation present that's lost in his very messy cave. And by the time she gets back to Kazul's, she's got all this stuff to tell him and she has completely forgotten about the stone prince. So she tells Kazul what is going on and then Kazul has her start running errands because Kazul has to participate in the trial. Like every dragon has to do it, even though Kazul is very sick. So she like sends messages and picks out a coronation gift. And while Kazul sets out for the trial, uh, Simmerine. She like princesses aren't supposed to go like it's dragons only affair. So she goes to visit Eleonora just for, you know, just to check in. And, but on her way, Eleanor had been coming to visit her. Or no, she'd been on her way to clean the banquet hall because that's what Warwick told her to do. And that's when Simran's like, oh shit, I forgot about the stone prince in there. But because he's made of stone, he gets very well camouflaged. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I think Simran told him to pretend to be a rock. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, so he tells them that he, when he was there all night pretending to be a rock curled up on the ground, he overheard two wizards who are going to fix the trials so that Warrock will be the king. And I think that Zeminar's son, the other shitty wizard, is there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and he, like, came back because he forgot something or something. Like, you know, some, some dumb plot-based reason why he is also there. And he's like, ah, well, you got me. We're gonna get, and we're, you know, it's too late to do anything about it. We're gonna get that crystal, and it's gonna be great for us. And then he's gonna, I don't know, magic kill them, magic harm them in some way. Probably kill. Uh, but Eleonora throws her bucket of water at him, and he melts. It's very <laughs> satisfying. Uh, so they head out to figure out, like, they're like, okay, well, we need to stop these trials before they start, even though they've already probably started. So they come up with this plan that they're going to fill all their buckets with the water and soap and lemon juice that Eleonora was using to clean. So they fill all of their buckets and she uses her magic feathers to uh, one of the magic feathers to go to the place where the trials are happening and try to convince the dragons that this is going on, uh, but they don't listen to her. So they use the second feather to go to Morwen's house so that she can figure out where the wizards are. And the Morwen's able to discover where the wizards are. So then uh, she uses the last feather to get them there, I believe. Yeah. Yeah. And they melt all the wizards who are doing some sort of weird spell on a piece of the stone from the cave that enchants the Collins stone so that uh, Warag can can carry it without it falling out of his, his claws. And he thinks that uh, he has an upper hand on them because he's got Morwen as a hostage, so they can't. He thinks they can't use the bucket of water on him because it will also dissolve her. But the Stone Prince does it anyway and explains that Morwen's house is very clean, so she must use soap a lot, <laughs> and it probably won't wouldn't melt her. He's a clever. He's a clever boy. Yes. Um, which is very, it's very interesting. Like he is, he is um, portrayed throughout as like someone who is very smart, is very clever, is not quite on Simmerine's level, but is is not 
the way the other princes are. Mm-hmm. He has just made some stress-induced mistakes. Yes. <laughs> Relatable. Correct. Um, so they are able to cancel the spell, and uh, Warag drops the stone, and he tries to set them on fire when he sees that they're interfering, but they all still have the fireproofing spell. And these other dragons come and take everyone into custody because they can't fucking figure out what's going on. But by the time they get back, it turns out that the new king has already been chosen and it's Kazool. So, of course, now that they have the king on their side, Simreen explains everything to Kazool, who's like, yeah, I trust them. And they decide to turn Warog into a toad. Mm-hmm. No, he just... Um... He just becomes a toad because they point out that he hasn't acted in a dragon-like manner. And then he, uh, it's very interesting, actually, because all along he hasn't been acting in a dragon-like manner or, like, in accordance with their laws or whatever. But I guess it's only when that's pointed out to him that he just, like, it seemed to me that that was just happening to him. Do you know, like, they didn't do a spell to turn him into a toad. They're just like, oh, he turned into a toad because that's what happens when dragons don't act like dragons. Yeah, it's a it's a very fairy tale logic. Like you have to point out the emperor has no clothes. Yeah. Anyway, uh, meanwhile, so he's a toad now, and um, Simran points out that technically the stone prince fought Warog, and technically Warog did not win. So technically the stone prince has rescued Eleonora because Simarine has picked up, we we've left off that Eleonora has dropped all these hints. Like she's into the stone prince. Like they've been having this little sidebar flirtation. So, so she would be willing and happy to be rescued by the stone prince. Yes. And Morin knows a spell that can counteract his stoneness. And also points out when he's like, but I still have to do a great service for a king. And Morin's like, you, the king of dragons, you did it. That was prophecy fulfilled. We're done here. So Kazula becomes the king and has a coronation and decides to employ Cimmerine as a cook and librarian. uh, Since the kings technically generally don't keep princesses because princesses are a status symbol and the king doesn't need any more status symbols. So that's the end. Yeah, now she's King's Cook and Librarian. Yes. Yeah. She's very happy with that. But yeah, so it's good. It's a good book. I 100% these are quick reads, like we said in our debate about where it falls on the young adult middle grade section. And like, they're very easy to read. The audiobook's only like six and a half hours long. And they're, they're a lot of fun. They've aged very well for the most part, at least the first one. And I definitely think you should read them. Oh, hard agree. So fun. So yeah. so formative for me. Like this and like Wayside School and what the absolutely true story of the Three Little Pigs. Like all these kind of meta humor in children's book. I like I definitely remember reading this in fifth grade and just kind of being like, oh, my God, are you like, are, is this allowed? Are you allowed to do this in a book? Oh, my God. Guess what you are? You're allowed. It's so great. 
Yeah, these are still highly enjoyable as someone who just reread all of them. Although, interestingly, my library only had the first three books when I was growing up, and it never occurred to me to uh, ask or buy for the fourth one for, like, my birthday or something. Uh, and I blame the original dub of Sailor Moon because <laughs> it awkwardly leaves off dubbing in the middle of the second season. And I guess I was like, some narratives just aren't resolved ever. Explanation. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah, the fourth one she actually wrote first, and I will. It's probably the weakest of the four, but it's still enjoyable. I don't know. When I was a kid, anyway, I don't think that I knew there was more than one of these. I don't think I knew there was more than one of these, and now I feel slightly robbed. But maybe I'll read them now. No one yeah, I definitely me. got the first two from the Scholastic Book Fair, and then took the third one out of the library. And the fourth one, it just didn't interest me. Like the, And I, I, I get like this. That wasn't for this podcast, but I, I said it on another podcast that Renata and I were on. I get very attached to characters to a point where sometimes, like, I don't want to leave them behind. And even though the fourth book is about the Simarine's child, I was like, oh, but I want to read about Simarine as the protagonist. Uh, even though the third book does not have Simarine as the protagonist, but I did read and enjoy that one. So I, I just think I just never, like, bothered to pick it up. It is hard. It's like if you read, I don't know, three books about Harry Potter and then the fourth one was about his kids. Like, that's a rough transition. Or like if you read seven about them and then Curse a Child. <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> In this wild hypothetical situation, it might be hard to get into that. <laughs> oh my god, I've completely blocked that from my mind. <laughs> Side note, I did see the play, and I did like it in play form, but the book, anyway, we'll talk about that <laughs> later. Maybe never. Let's uh, move on to our dramatic readings. Sounds good. Excellent. All right. So our first one happens very shortly after Simmerain has, I feel like, by the way, every time I said her name, I've said it a different way, and I'm not confident at all about it. I just want to <laughs> mention that now an hour into it. <laughs> Just roll with it. That is the rule of fantasy names. Just roll with it. Yeah. By the way, does this book have a fantasy map? No, it doesn't. It doesn't need one. Doesn't matter. <laughs> Crushing it, Patricia Reedy. Anyway, this book, this reading is from near the beginning, after Simmerine has been um, taken in by Kazuel and some knights have arrived, and Kelsey will read for Simmerine slash narrator. I will be the f- knight. And that's it. Kate's not in this one. Bye, Kate. (laughs) (laughs) The first of the knights arrived at the end of the second week. Cimmerine was busy cleaning swords. Kazul had been right about their condition. Not only were some of them rusty, but nearly all of them needed sharpening. She was polishing the last flakes of rust from an enormous broadsword when she heard someone calling from the mouth of the cave. Feeling somewhat irritated by the interruption, she rose and, carrying the sword, went to see who it was. As she came nearer to the entrance, she was able to make out the words that whoever it was was shouting. Dragon, come out and fight. Fight for the Princess Simmerine of Linderwall. 
Oh, honestly, Simmerine muttered and quickened her step. Here you, she said as she came out into the sunlight. Then she had to duck as a spear flashed through the air over her head. Stop that, she cried. I'm Princess Simmerine. You are? Are you sure? I mean... Simmerine raised her head cautiously and squinted. It was still fairly early in the morning, and the sun was in back of the person standing outside the cave so that it was difficult to see anything but the outline of his figure against the brightness. Of course I'm sure, Simmerine said. What did you expect? Letters of reference? Come around here where I can see who you are, please. The figure moved sideways, and Cimmerine saw that it was a knight in shiny new armor, except for the legs, where the armor was dusty from walking. Cimmerine wondered briefly why he hadn't ridden, but decided not to ask. The knight's visor was raised, and a few wisps of sandy hair showed above his handsome face. He was studying her with an expression of worried puzzlement. "'What can I do for you?' Simmerine said after several min- moments had gone by and the knight still hadn't said anything. Well, um, if you are the Princess Simmerine, I've come to rescue you from the dragon. Simmerine set the point of the broadsword on the ground and leaned on it as if it were a walking cane. I thought that might be it, but I'd rather not be rescued. Thank you just the same. Not be rescued? The princess is always... No, they don't, Cimmerine said firmly, recognizing the beginning of a familiar argument. And even if I wanted to be rescued, you're going about it all wrong. What? Shouting, come out and fight the way you did. No self-respecting dragon is going to answer to a challenge like that. It sounds like a child's dare. Dragons are very conscious of their dignity. At least all the ones I've met so far are. Oh, What should I have said? Stand forth and do battle is the usual challenge. Cimmerine remembered her princess lessons. She had always been more interested in what the knights and dragons were supposed to say than in memorizing the places where she was supposed to scream. But the wording doesn't have to be exact as long as it's suitably formal. You're new at this, aren't you? Rescuing you was going to be my first big quest. You're sure you don't want to be rescued? Quite sure. I like living with Kazool. You like? Of course, the dragons enchanted you. I should have thought of that before. Kazool has not enchanted me, and I do not want to be rescued by anybody. This place suits me very well. I like polishing swords and cooking cherries jubilee and reading Latin scrolls. If you don't believe me, ask anyone in Linderwall. They've been complaining about my unprincess-like behavior for years. Mm. Uh, What a good princess. All right. Our next dramatic reading is when we first meet Morwen, the greatest of all witches. And I will be Cimmerine and Kate will be Morwen and Kelsey will be Kozul the dragon. Sorry, my sticky note fell out. I gotta invest in better sticky notes. These have no stick to them. (laughs) (laughs) But they do have Hello Kitty on them. That's very important. Yeah. Anyway. Kazul stopped in front of a neat gray house with a wide porch and a red roof. Over the door was a black and gold sign in large black letters reading, None of this nonsense, please. There were several cats of various sizes and colors perched on the porch railing or lying in the sun. As Simmerine dismounted, Kazul said to one of them, 
Would you be good enough to tell Morwen that I'm here and would like to talk to her? The cat, a large gray tom, blinked its yellow eyes at Kazool. Then he jumped down from the porch rail and sauntered into the house, his tail held high as if to say, I'm doing this as a particular favor, mind, and don't you forget it. He doesn't seem very impressed, Simmering commented with some amusement. Why should he be? Well, you're a dragon. What difference does that make to a cat? Fortunately, Simmerine did not have to find an answer, for at that moment, Morwen appeared in the doorway. She was wearing the same black robe she had worn when she visited Simmerine, or another one exactly like it, and she peered through her glasses with the air of someone studying an unexpected and rather peculiar puzzle. Good morning, Kazool. This is a surprise. Good. If you aren't expecting us to be here, no one else is either. That's the way of things, is it? How much of a hurry are you in? Not much of one, as long as no one knows we're here. Then Simmerine had better get down and have something to drink. There's cider or goat's milk, though if you want to have that, you'll have the cats after you. Or I could put on a kettle for tea. Good gracious, what have you done to your hand? While Morwen had been talking, Simmerine had turned and slid carefully down Kozula's side. It was a long slide, and when her feet hit the ground, she had to put out a hand to keep from falling. Morwen's exclamation made her blink in surprise, and she looked down. The palm of her right hand was covered with blood from half a dozen deep slashes and as many scrapes. Oh dear, it must have happened in the caves when it was so dark. I didn't realize. It doesn't hurt at all. Hurting or not, it needs attention. Come inside and I'll see to it while Kazul tells me why you're here. You'll have to go around the back this time. The front steps won't take the weight. A gnome stole one of the supports, and I haven't had time to get it fixed yet. Pesky creatures. They're worse than mice. Don't the cats keep the mice away? Yes, but they don't do a thing about the gnomes, which is why gnomes are worse. Mind the step. Uh, Like, dream lifestyle. Except for the gnomes. (laughs) Alright. And last up, we will do... The part where that dummy Therindil unleashes a djinn and Simmerine outwits him because she is a beautiful genius. And Kate will be Simmerine and Kelsey will be Therindil and I'll be the djinn. I am a djinn who was imprisoned in that jar and I am the instrument of thy death and that of thy paramour. My what? Thy lover. The man who stands beside thee? I know what you meant, but he isn't my lover or my fiancé or my boyfriend or anything, and I refuse to be killed with him. But, Simmerine, you know perfectly well. You hush. You've made enough of a mess already. If he is not thy paramour nor any of those other things, then what is he? A nuisance. Simmerine, you're not being very kind. What he is matters not. It is enough that thou and he shall die. Enough for whom? For me. Tis my will that thou and he shall die by my hand. Thou hast but to choose the manner of thy death. Old age. Mock me not. Thou and he shall die, and by my hand, ere this day draws to its close. Do you suppose he means it? Why would he keep bellowing it at us if he didn't mean it? Do be quiet, Therindel. Should I offer to fight him, do you think? Don't be silly. 
You came up here to fight a dragon. You aren't prepared for a djinn, and nobody could reasonably expect you to challenge him. Whew, if you say so. Simarine turned back to the djinn and saw that he, too, was looking perturbed. What's the matter with you? Dost thou not wish to know why I will kill thee? What difference does it make? Yes, actually. Darendil, shut up! Hear my story, O oh luckless pair. I am one of those djinn who did rebel against the law of our kind, and for my crimes, I was sentenced to imprisonment in this bottle until the day should come when human hands would loose me. As is the custom of my people, I swore that whoso should release me during the first hundred years of my imprisonment, I would make ruler of the earth. Whoso should release me during the second hundred years, I should make rich beyond all dreams of men. Whoso shall release me during the third hundred, I should grant three wishes. And whoso should release me after any longer span of time, I should grant only the choice of what death he would die. You're going to kill us because it's traditional? Yes. Just how long were you in that jar? Well, actually... How long? 217 years. But nobody ever releases a djinn before the 300 years are over. You're trying to get around your oath. You pretended you had to kill us so you wouldn't have to give us the wishes. No. Thinkest thou that the granting of wishes alone would so trouble me? Needs must I kill thee and thy fair companion, for I cannot return home and say that thou didst release me, and I left thee living? I would be a laughingstock. Never in three thousand years has such a thing occurred. Then you shouldn't have sworn an oath. I had to. It is the custom of our kind. T'would be... T'would be... Improper? T'would be improper to do otherwise. So yeah, these are good books. You should read them. That's a little taste of why they're so good. Just, just delicious. Yeah. I love that Like they still follow fairy tale rules despite twisting them. They just add, like, be nice to others, but also don't be an idiot. Don't be an idiot. <laughs> and don't be sexist. And don't soak up other magic that doesn't belong to you. No, it's very rude. All right. Uh, Y'all want to play some Would You Rather? All right. Yes. Would you rather be a dragon's princess or the kept woman of a billionaire who makes you sign sex paperwork? Um, this is difficult. I think, I think I'm going to go, see, because I love the internet and like modern conveniences, Mm -hmm. but also magic would be pretty cool. Magic would be cool. Um, you know, I still, I still think I'm going to be the kept woman of a billionaire. Money could solve a lot of my problems. I'm going kept woman as well. Simmerine enjoys her life, but she seems to spend a lot of time, like, cleaning and polishing. And that's not, like, my jam, to be honest. Well, I'm here to make the people who like books with maps in them feel seen. So <laughs> I'm going I'm gonna go for Dragon's Princess because Kazul seems pretty chill and Simarine later gets a promotion anyway and she gets to live in a world with magic. That's true. All right. How about would you rather gather hashtag herbs for a fireproofing spell or for your 18th century Scottish medical practice? 
like Claire from Outlander. Remember her? <laughs> uh, I absolutely would rather gra- gather herbs for a fireproofing spell because that does imply that magic is a thing and uh, doesn't necessarily mean that it can't coexist with the internet. Also, I don't want to live in old-timey Scotland. It sounds terrible. Yeah, uh, pretty much same for the same reasons. Uh, those That century of medical practice, most centuries of medical practice, is horrifying. Take me to fantasy land. Yeah, same. I feel like the only reason to pick that one is if you're particularly horny for Jamie Fraser, which, as established, <laughs> we're not. <laughs> All right. Let's move on to Reader's Advisory, where we'll suggest things to read instead of or in addition to this book. If it wasn't clear that for us, this is definitely an in addition to one, we fully recommend this, whether it's, you know, revisiting your childhood nostalgia, or if you've never read this, or if you have a, you know, tween child who might like this, just, it's great. Yeah. It's a thumbs up all around. Um mm-hmm. Also, as Kelsey kind of alluded to, she is much more of a book with map type of person than we are. Uh, So I'm going to recommend one thing that I love and then kind of hand it over to her to recommend some more things. And my one thing is going to be a book I've talked about many times on this podcast before, and that is Ironhearted Violet by Kelly Barnhill, uh, who most recently won the Newbery Award for her book, uh, The Girl Who Drank the Moon. But Ironhearted Violet is also about a princess who is not like other princesses and she wishes she were. Uh, She wishes she was beautiful and blonde and perfect and she's not. And uh, she kind of has to deal with that in her own way. It's a lot of similar like twists on fairy tales. It's a little darker and less funny than these. Um, It is a middle grade book. I adore it. And I 100% recommend it. I have a couple, too, before I I will also turn this over to Kelsey. Uh, The Princeless comic series by Jeremy Whitley is so good. I think it really is pretty much a pitch-perfect match for these books. Um, And they're graphic novels, and they are a diverse range of princesses of all ethnicities. And they're they're funny and sharp and great for this age range. And... um, you know, as, as you can guess by the title, Princeless, they're about princesses who, for various reasons, are uninterested in princes. Um, and then for an older age group, I would, for, you know, teens and adults, I'd recommend Damsel by Al- Alana Arnold. This is a Prince Honor book this year, and it is also a book about, you know, rescuing princesses from dragons, but it has a, it's not funny the way this is, but it's so sharp and it's this really kind of dark commentary on rape culture and it rules but it you know it's it's not funny like this is all right Kelsey what do you got all right so speaking of hoping we pronounce names correctly my first rec is uh YA trilogy the Lumetier Chronicles by Melina Marchetta um, it has cursed kingdoms, refugees, long-lost heirs to various thrones. And this author is extremely talented at portraying just, like, emotional truth. Uh, like, it does not... There's major content warnings for, you know, abuse and trauma. 
Um, I don't find any of it gratuitous, and it still emphasizes like love, honor, friendship, family, and duty. I'm summarizing this very poorly, but she is a brilliant author. What's the t- What's the title of the first book? Is this- uh, fin- Finnegan of the Rock. Okay, that's what I thought, but the, I yeah. I didn't realize that was the name of the trilogy. Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. For old, even older readers, there's uh, The Priory of the Orange Tree by Samantha Shannon. It just came out. It's an 800-page doorstopper, but it does, in fact, have fantasy and dragons and also lesbians, which is nice. Uh, Jim C. Hines' Princess, Court, Princess series uh, is four books, and it's got a Charles... Charlie's Angels style team up of Cinderella, Snow White, and Sleeping Beauty. Uh, and their fairy tales are over, but the Queen of the Realm still needs to essentially have them go around solving crimes slash magical crises. Uh, I, caveat, I didn't like the fourth book uh, for spoilery reasons, but I still found the series a highly enjoyable read. Um, and getting back to younger people uh the netflix cartoon she-ra and the princesses of power this series is magical it's got princesses no dragons yet but there's a magical flying horse uh there is no the bitchy one all of the princesses are valued um for all of their diverse skills and it's wonderful and um at the time of recording there are only two seasons but i just found out that when this is released there will be three seasons so that is uh, I'm going to throw one more out there. Speaking of things that will be released soon, a uh, friend of the show, Rebecca Kim Wells, has a book called Shatter the Sky coming out that is an angry bisexual dragon novel. I mean, bisexual girl, but also dragons novel. Is uh, the dragon bisexual? It is very good. I read an advanced copy of it. I'm not just saying that because I know Rebecca and think she's great. But definitely pick that up. It comes out. It'll be out before uh, this episode comes out. I think it comes out like July 30th or something like that. But yeah, check it out. All right. We'll have this whole list, including some other ones we didn't get a chance to talk about, up on our website, which is, of course, worstbestsellers.com. And now let's move on to our candy pairing, where we will suggest a you know, a a candy to go along with this book, just like a classy princess might suggest a wine to go along with her dragon's meal. Uh, so for my candy pairing, I chose a mini Twix bar because it stands outside of the legacy that is expected of it, which is to come in a package with another Twix. Uh, and also it was one of my favorite candies as a child, and a mini one is the perfect amount for my adult uh, palate to consume before i start thinking like oh that's too sweet and i don't want any more oh the candy struggle is so real you're so right (laughs) i feel like i still haven't hit the level of adulthood where i think anything is too sweet (laughs) that means that means you're gonna live forever yes (laughs) uh my candy pairing though is lemon drops which are actually not that sweet but i love them anyway and it's just a little just a little shout out to Morwen and her lemon scented clean living. Mm. 
Uh, so I finally, on this reread, looked up what Cherry's Jubilee is. So that is my candy pairing, even though it is a dessert. That's flambéed cherries and liqueur, usually served over ice cream. Um, delicious and indulgent for kids and grown-ups, much like this book. Plus, I found out you can also cook lots of other fruits in alcohol and set them on fire. So even if cherries aren't your thing, you can still do that with a fruit you actually like. That sounds great. Let's let's stop the podcast and go set some fruit on fire. <laughs> yeah. Or I guess we're so close to the end, we might as well just finish, and then I'll do the fruit of my own time. Sounds good. <sighs> Fine. Um, it's time for the rock, paper, snicked, where... Kate will say who Dwayne The Rock Johnson would be if he were in this book, and I'll say who Wolverine would be if he were in this book, and Kelsey can choose which most enhances the book, or can choose paper, which is to leave the book as is, which is probably more tempting than usual for this book. Dwayne The Rock Johnson was in this book. He would be one of the knights sent to rescue Cimmerine. And once he sees that she is, A, a teenager, and B, not, like, super eager to be rescued, he'd help her discourage other knights and princes from coming after her. It wouldn't, like, actually change the book very much, but there would be some cutaway scenes of the rock hanging more, like, rock slide ahead signs in the forest and other, like, various tricky things to get different knights and princes off of her trail. All right. Well, if Wolverine were in this, he would be camping out in the caves for a while, as as Wolverine so often does. Uh, he wouldn't actually impact the narrative, but I think he would, you know, cross paths with Cimmerine occasionally and just kind of trade some classic Wolverine quips with her. And he would eventually stumble on the Stone Prince and offer him some whiskey, which he of course has. But it turns out whiskey does not work the same as healing waters for some people, although it does for Wolverine. So he just drinks the rest of the whiskey and heads off on his next journey, probably to Canada or the liquor store or something. All right. I appreciate that both of these narratives still leave the main narrative basically intact. Um, I think that... Okay, the sheer pun potential of the rock hanging a sign that says rock slide ahead is way too appealing. So I'm my, me and my love of dad jokes are going to go with the rock on this one. Excellent. I salute that. And there are no losers in rock, paper, snicked. Not even paper this time. Not even paper. Uh, at the Randall's a loser, though. He's not in this game. It's true. <sighs> All right. What do we think the moral of the story is? My moral of the story is that there's nothing wrong with inflating your skills on your resume as long as you're willing to put up in the work to back them up, which is something we kind of glossed over. But uh, when Cimmerine um, agreed to be Kazool's princess and she was listing all of her skills, they were all skills she hadn't actually used in a very long time and were very rusty. But she kind of held on to them and maybe overinflated them anyway, and it got her the job and she was great at it. So there we go. Lean in, Cimmerine. Uh, my moral was, if you learn about whatever interests you, plus etiquette, even though it's boring, it will open all kinds of doors. Uh, mine is uh, ban men from using magic. <laughs> they can't be trusted. All right, and now it's time for Duarte's Corner, where my cat Duarte will give his opinions about this book. <coughs> <coughs> Ah! 
All right. Duarte, you're so right. It is so refreshing to just finally read a book that really shows cats the proper amount of respect that they deserve. Marwin has nine cats. That is finally the amount of cat content I'm looking for. And while there is a book that is about Morwen later on in the series, there isn't one about her cats yet. But, you know, there's always time for a new edition of the, the series. So you never know. Keep your fingers crossed. Right, Patricia, read you a letter. One of the books is just about Morwen. I gotta go read that right now. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> All right, Duarte, we'll, we'll read that one together and we'll see how many cats are in it and then decide our next course of action. I hope that sounds good. Okay, Duarte, thanks as ever for joining us. Uh, do any humans have any closing thoughts? These are great books. This was a great way to close out Flashback Summer, ending on a high note. And I think you should read them. And thank you so much to Kelsey for agreeing to come on and talk about them with us. Thank you for having me, guys. It was awesome. Yay. Well, if you would like to come on social media and just, you know, tell us how great these books are, we'll be like, yeah, we know. Uh, we'll we'll like all your comments. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash worstbestsellers. We're on Twitter at worstbestseller with no S because the S was turned to stone and it honestly was the S's own fault for not paying attention, but we're getting by without it. It's fine. Uh, and we also have a Goodreads group, which you can um, best access by going to our website, worstbestsellers.com and clicking on Goodreads. You can subscribe to us on Stitcher, iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, basically anywhere that podcasts are acquired. Uh, if you do subscribe to us, please take a moment to rate and review us. When you rate and review us, it uh, moves us up a little bit on the charts and makes it easier for new listeners to find us. If you don't rate and review us, we will be forced to come to your home and splash you with a bucket of soapy lemon water, which might not like actually melt you, but it would probably be an inconvenience anyway, so keep that in mind. Uh, you can also support us on Patreon at patreon.com slash worstbestsellers. Uh, Patreon is a service where you pledge a small monthly recurring donation. It uh, goes to us to help upkeep the podcast, pay for hosting, pay for artists to do things like redesign our logo, pay our editor Becca. Uh, and in return, you get all sorts of perks, including postcards or a newsletter that comes out monthly just for $3 and up subscribers and all sorts of other things. So check it out. Uh, we also have merch available. If you go to worstbestsellers.com and click on merch, uh, you can find all sorts of designs based on our podcast that you can wear on your body. I am on Twitter at Renata Snacks. I am at, on Twitter at 14 Across. I am invisible. <gasps> Sorry. You, you did right. such a good job on that internet invisibility spell. <laughs> you crushed it. Mastered it. All right. Well, Kelsey, thanks again for joining us. Thank you. And we will be back in two weeks with, uh, you know what, this is not technically Flashback Summer, but it feels in the vein of Flashback Summer somehow. Uh, we will be reading the movie novelization of Dora and the Lost City of Gold, which is written by <laughs> Steve Bailing. I'm kind of yeah. excited to read it. Yeah, it's making some waves on the internet. So we'll see how it goes. All right, until then, bye. Bye. bye.